This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. This is MyHeart.net and welcome to our podcast on hypertension. With us today, we have very, very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Suzanne Opral, who is a very well-known, distinguished professor of medicine and cell biology at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Uh, she's been the president of the American Heart Association. She's been the president of the American Society on Hypertension. And, um, and, but to me, she's always going to be the grand dame of hypertension. So Suzanne, thank you very much for taking the time to be there with us today. Thank you, Alan. You are one of my most distinguished former trainees. I'm very proud of you. Yeah, exactly right. You even trained my son, you know, Philippe. So, oh. <laughs> uh, so I thank you for that, everything that you've done, you know, for our family. So uh, we know that hypertension is a very pervasive problem, and it affects nearly 50% of the U.S. population, including 90 million, you know, adults with uncontrolled hypertension, and an estimated 34 million um, that are not even untreated, you know, don't even know they have hypertension. What's bothersome to me, Suzanne, is that we have about, uh, for an adult of 40 years old that has no blood pressure problem, the lifetime risk of developing hypertension is 93% for African-American, 92% for Hispanic, and 86% for white. And, and to me, it's not so much about, um, you know, who's going to develop hypertension, but more like when, uh, and it's going to affect the majority, you know, most of us. So, so how do we define, you know, hypertension according to the new guidelines that were just published just a few years ago? Well, we have very strict guidelines now, and the, the um, dividing points have gotten lower. In order to have normal blood pressure, you have to have a systolic of 120 or less and diastolic of 80 or less. Um, if you have pressure in the 120s over the 80s, you're thought to have elevated blood pressure. It's not hypertension, but it's usually a precursor. So you need to watch out, um, improve your lifestyle. Hypertension itself is defined as a pressure greater than 130 over 80, and it's divided into two stages. If you're in the 130s over the 80s, you have stage one. And if you're greater than 140 over greater than 90, you have stage two. So why the new guidelines, Suzanne? I mean, it's, why did we... What did they bring the bar on hypertension? Because in the process, they've made millions of American, you know, hypertensive. Because more and more epidemiologic data show, we have more data uh, following people throughout lifetime, showing that if you have pressures in these ranges, you're at risk of developing even higher pressures and cardiovascular disease, predominantly heart failure, but also stroke and other kidney disease and other things. So that uh, knowing that you have a precursor of something bad uh, should help you, should uh, generate the energy to get to a doctor or get to a healthcare provider of some sort who can help you lower it by changing diet, changing physical activity, which is very important. And if that doesn't work, taking medicine. Yeah. Basically the guidelines are telling us 
lower blood pressure basically you know protects you against having a heart attack against having heart failure against having a stroke and that's why lower is better i get it but we call hypertension the silent killer in a way you touched on that a little bit when you talk about the complication but why do we call it the silent killer because most people who have hypertension that can't tell that they have anything wrong with them they the diagnosis is made by measuring the blood pressure correctly with the patient the person relaxed with the proper sized instrument uh, and with the taker of the pressure knowing what he or she is doing and that is rare i can tell you having <laughs> gone to the primary care doctor's office which is having you know children crying and people in pain and staff rushed a lot of the pressures that are taken in doctor's offices aren't very accurate either so we need to focus on the correct measurement and go from there so basically if you don't take your blood pressure you're not going to know you have hypertension so number one let's get the blood pressure checked and number two let's take it correctly so a lot of times my patients they come in the office and you know they have the patient coming from the waiting room they sit them slap the blood pressure you know the sphygmomanometer on the arm and check your blood pressure and it's usually you know so much higher so what's the proper way Susanna? man what, what do you what do you do in the hypertension clinic well the patient should be seated and not disturbed for at least five minutes the cuff needs to be the proper size if the patient has a big arm you need a bigger cuff needs to be put on um, in a way that's not painful. Sometimes it, the cuff gets a little crooked and it can squeeze the arm and hurt it. And um, need to leave it on there for a few minutes before you take the pressure. You don't want to stick it and wrap it on and take the pressure right away. Because sometimes having the arm handled um, makes the patient either excited for a good reason or excited for a bad reason. And you get falsely elevated level. You get numbers that are not reflective of what the blood pressure is. Now, do they recommend also to kind of combine not only clinic blood pressure, but also blood pressure at home? I mean, do you do that in your hypertension yes. clinic? We recommend that the patient buy a cuff, and it has to be the right kind of cuff. They're not terribly expensive. And measure the pressure when you're seated, relaxed, not having drunk uh, coffee or some intoxicants, um, not being upset about anything, and write it down and keep a record. So when the blood pressure is high, you know, we, we, we start talking about, you know, the ways to bring it down. I mean, everybody's reluctant, you know, to take medication because they're afraid of side effects. I don't blame them. Um, you know, now we use generics, so the cost is not as much an issue anymore. But let's say, you know, we, we start, obviously, we always start with healthy lifestyle. Um, what do you tell the patient, you know, if you want to kind of really kind of target the healthy lifestyle? What are the lifestyle uh, changes or habits do you recommend for your patient? Well, a major thing that's emerged lately is physical activity. It's as important as diet. Uh, when the <laughs> blood flows past the endothelial cells, when you're active, you get more nitric oxide released and nitric oxide is a vasodilator, it lowers blood pressure. So really physical activity is as important as diet. And the diet, of course, includes reducing your number of calories in most cases and reducing the sodium intake, increasing potassium maybe. 
and maybe fewer calories. Um, I would say the majority, a great majority of my patients are at least overweight and a lot of them are obese. And that contributes to not only the blood pressure elevation, but then the cardiovascular complications of the elevation. So I need to work with, I would say, a majority of my patients because I have a hypertension clinic and I'm known as an expert. So doctors refer some of their difficult patients, um, tend to be older, have an unsatisfactory lifestyle and mostly are overweight or somewhat obese. So there's a lot to work on. The exercise, you, you, is it, do you have to have the type of exercise that brings about a weight loss or just exercise five days a week? And if you can do your 150 minutes per week, that's good enough to help bring your blood pressure down. Yeah, you don't have to climb mountains or anything. Walking, especially if you can walk briskly, uh, it's just as good as anything else. You don't have to be an athlete. There are some uh, some things that you know a lot of patients of mine that you know are traveling, they're businessmen, and there's always the problem with the alcohol and this like so social drinking. I mean, alcohol makes a difference in our blood pressure, doesn't it? Some of it's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess to elevate blood pressure. So if you have a hypertension problem, you should not be in the habit of consuming a lot of alcohol every day. These are not the type of meeting we go to, but I guess they're more like <laughs> business meeting, but you know, that's, that, that affects a lot of my patient population. So, so just to recap, try to lose, you know, some weight, uh, reduce the sodium, you know, maybe to less than 1500 um, milligram per day, increase maybe your potassium in the diet. I mean, the potassium apparently seems to have some beneficial effect. Uh, and we're talking about green leafy vegetables, I guess, and, and avocado. Uh, and the moderate exercise activity, it can be just walking, you don't have to do marathon and finally cut down, you know, on the drinks. I think usually we recommend less than two glasses a day of um, wine or, or, or beer. Uh, let me ask you, Suzanne, uh, now, so let's say we're doing the healthy lifestyle, the blood pressure is still a stage one hypertension, they're 135 over 80. Um, who do you actually you know, who do you decide to start on medical therapy? Who are the patients the most at risk that really need attention? I mean, obviously, if your blood pressure is very high, puts you at risk, but let's say you have mild hypertension. When do you decide, what makes you decide to treat them? Anybody who has mild hypertension, who's, you know, greater than uh, 130 over 80, start them, they can always, um, get off medicine again, if they improve their lifestyle while you have them on a little dose of a whatever, diuretic or calcium channel blocker and ARB. Um, you say, you know, it's possible if you can, by increasing your physical activity and improving your diet, get your blood pressure down, I can either stop your medicine or if you're on your multiple medicines, we can decrease some of them or eliminate some of them. And that's the goal. A lot of my patients are very happy when they see them get religion, get a better lifestyle, and they've started on four medicines that we can go down to two sometimes. I guess those patients that, that have had a heart attack or have heart disease already, um, you, you start them, I mean, after with a healthy lifestyle, you start on medical therapy. Uh, mm -hmm. But let's say you've never had a heart attack or you don't have heart disease. Uh, how do you go about, and the patient has a blood pressure of 140, you know, over 90. Um, 
you know, do you have any certain criteria? Is one more at risk than the other? If he has diabetes, for example, or if they smoke, um, you're more aggressive with them? Well, if you're convinced that their blood pressure stays at 140, that's too high. That's 10 millimeters mercury higher than the cutoff now, so that I would start medicine. And you can always say that this is not a lifetime sentence. If you can improve your lifestyle, if your blood vessels, they can reconfigure themselves a little bit, expand a little bit, your pressure can drop. We might be able to stop your medicine. Give them possible goals uh, that this is not, you know, death's door or anything like that. Certainly trying to prevent, you know, cardiovascular and cere cerebrovascular disease. We talk about these medications, Suzanne. Uh, what are the main, you know, groups of medication that you use in your clinic? Well, there are four main groups. One is diuretic, a thiazide type diuretic like chlorthalidone. I think chlorthalidone is better than hydrochlorothiazide. It's longer acting. And it only comes in one dose, so sometimes the patients have to cut the pill up, but I think that's important. Second class is an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, drugs that interfere with the renin-angiotensin system. Renin is a hormone that's made in the kidney, and it breaks down a um, protein called angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1. It's an inactive 10-membered peptide, which I love because I'm that was my first research experience, studying where conversion occurs from an inactive 10-membered peptide to an active 8-membered peptide, angiotensin 2, so that ACE inhibitors or angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors prevent that conversion, and the 10-membered peptide is inactive, biologically inactive. So that's probably the second class. Um, the third class is blocking angiotensin 2. The, receptor. Angiotensin II is an eight-membered peptide that causes vasoconstriction and causes the heart to beat harder. Um, you can block that by blocking the, the type II angiotensin receptor. Um, so those are the angiotensin receptor blockers. And then um, calcium channel blockers work by calcium tends to cause vasoconstriction and Calcium channel blockers like amlodipine uh, prevent that. So you have diuretics, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, calcium channel blockers. And then a third class, which we use more in patients with real resistant hypertension, are drugs like spironolactone that block aldosterone. So there are five classes that are used quite often. So you have uh, these, these, um, these medication, um, depending on on the patient, let's say, for example, you see a patient, African-American, is there a type of a class of antihypertensive medication that you tend to start them on? Or, or, or depending if you're Caucasian, if you're white, and you have, you know, your businessman, is there another different type of medication you get to start them on? Or do you, is it the same for everybody? Well, if you're something like a court reporter that has to sit there all day, or an attorney who's been in court, orating all day and, and come to the bathroom, I wouldn't use a diuretic. There are people who can't tolerate diuretics very well. Um, and there are people who the, the calcium channel blockers like amlodipine tend to cause a little, because they vasodilate, um, tend to cause a little bit of leg swelling. So that could be a problem. 
And there are other classes of adverse effects. There are also other classes of, there are probably eight or 10 classes of, of antihypertensive medications, some of which don't work as well as others. And if you're, some people are intolerant of some of them, and I get patients like that referred, the difficult cases where there you have to reach deep into your pocket to send some, something that the patient will tolerate. Some of them just say, I can't take anything. It all bothers me. It's hard for these patients that feel good but yeah. have hypertension to have to take medication. How do you, how do you uh, help them? You know, maybe how, how do you help them take all these medications? Is there a way to improve on adherence, you know, to their treatment? Because, you know, it's easy to forget to take a pill, particularly if it's in the middle of the day. So, how do you go about treating those patients? Do you use a lot of combinations? You can use combinations. Uh, for one thing, it's helpful to have them take the medicine at night because it's easier to remember uh, before you go into bed, you're not doing much of anything, you can take it. Um, or in the morning when you're just getting going, if you're taking multiple doses during the day, that's hard. So I try to get long-acting agents that can either last the whole 24 hours or last 12 hours and dose in the morning and at bedtime. So you try to make it simple, you know, where they can remember combined drugs as much as possible when right. available. Unfortunately, yeah. there's not too many drugs. I wish there was more combination. There's not a drug combined with chlorothaladone, you know, which was mm -hmm. well studied in the U.S. They all have using HCTZ, but, you know, I guess you know, that's one of the possibilities that you have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I tried not to use hydrochlorothiazide because it's just kind of weak. The, you were talking about the time of the day. Um, I know that there was a study that was just um, uh, published, you know, this year about, you know, whether is it better to take your medication at night or better in the morning. And yeah, there was a study right. done in the UK and it showed that it was really not that much different. I mean, there was no difference in outcome. But I hear you're doing a study at UAB called the Precision, you know, study. Mm -hmm. And I think you're studying a special patient population, aren't you? Um, yes, we are. I think it's a study you're doing with Dr. Aurora. Um, maybe I think mostly in patients that have that are African American, but mm -hmm. you know, yeah. or, or problem with the weight. It'll be interesting to see whether you know there are some patients that would benefit more from taking you know their medicine at night versus you know early in the morning. I guess yeah, that's very good data on that point. Right. The big study that was just announced said there was no difference in their patients. Right. But of course, the patients who are get into trials and complete the trials tend to be the super patients. They're right. <laughs> interested in improving their health. They show up for their visits. They always take pills, et cetera. The others, you need a little bit more attention. Yeah, may not reflect uh, our patient population. Um, so because of these medication uh, and some of the side effects that we can see sometimes, you know, we have some patients that kind of go on the internet and they look for, you know, uh, either on YouTube or on TikTok, they'll be looking for, you know, alternative medicine, but different ways to, uh, you know, control their blood pressure. And sometimes they will even replace, you know, their medication by these uh, alternative treatment. Uh, turns out it may not always be a good idea because I, you know, what is the evidence that, that we have that it's actually effective in lowering patients? If you don't have randomized controlled trials, you don't know whether the drug really worked or to prevent events. I mean, just lowering the blood pressure is one thing, 
to prevent heart attacks and strokes and kidney failure requires sustained effect and effect on the systems, blocking renin, blocking angiotensin, uh, diuresing, and so on. So people who think a tranquilizer will work, you know, maybe it does. <laughs> it eliminates <laughs> yes. the mm, sympathetic right. arousal, but it probably doesn't affect the basal blood pressure very much. Yeah, and they won't be able to function very much. I know you were involved in a lot of clinical trials and all these trials always enroll thousands of patients. That time study that we were just talking about in the UK, I think enrolled 24,000 you know, people. I don't know how many thousand people were in all hat and, and stop, you know, hypertension and, and so forth. I mean, thousands and thousands. And I was looking at some of the meta-analysis meta that they had, for example, for the studies of supplement for the treatment of hypertension. And one of them, just to give you an example, there was a study on garlic. Apparently there was 26 randomized controlled trial, 16 were excluded for poor quality and there were 10 studies that uh, three of which, uh, only three of which enrolled patients with hypertension. The others did not have hypertension. And the total number of patients in these three studies of studying garlic for treatment of hypertension include 132 patients. Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, when you have that kind of data, you need to really kind of dig and, and be careful, you know, about uh, what you read on the internet make sure that it's a good source, you know, and you have a lot of good resource at the American Heart Association uh, and, and for, for physicians and cardiologists. Of course, we have the American College, you know, of cardiology, which is, you know, you know, a, a major resource. Um, so be careful what you read and make sure that, you know, it's well sounded, you know, and good advice, advice by professional. Eating a ton of garlic, I think is not a good <laughs> Oh. <laughs> well, you even if not, it did lower the blood pressure, it's not a good idea. Yeah, gotta, there may not be too many people around you if you eat the ton of garlic. You get lonely. Suzanne, any uh, last word on, on hypertension and, and where we're headed, particularly with clinical research? Well, we're still not where we want to be. Uh, people are, the hypertension control rates are getting worse in recent data. We're not making progress because people think that the problem is solved. And of course, there's interest in new drugs, but I think the old drugs work perfectly well if people take them in improper combination. There's a lot of interest in what time of day you take them uh, and how you measure the blood pressure. We have earned studies where patients are using the uh, portable monitoring devices on their own checking at various intervals. There, there was a recent study showing nighttime and morning um, ingestion of blood pressure medicines didn't make any difference, but I don't think that's probably the last word. There's probably more that could go into that. Well, Suzanne Opral, the grand dame of hypertension, uh, always active in clinical research and basic science research. And I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Suzanne. The bad news is there's still a lot more to do because the hypertension is not going away. The population is becoming somewhat more sedentary and a little bit more uh, hefty, obese, somewhat obese. And the problems are getting harder. And people stress the stress of things like the pandemic and the threats of uh, you know, violence in the culture and so on is particularly for um, 
some sub subpopulations, African-Americans and poor people are under a lot of stress now. So we need to do better. Thank you. Your last words. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. You're great. I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Suzanne. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode. 